Jill Heinerth is a Canadian cave diver, underwater explorer, writer, photographer, and filmmaker. She is a veteran of over 30 years of filming, photography, and exploration on projects in submerged caves around the world. She has made TV series, consulted on movies, written several books, and is a frequent corporate keynote speaker. Jill is the first explorer-in-residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, recipient of Canada's prestigious Polar Medal, and is a fellow of the International Scuba Divers Hall of Fame. In recognition of her lifetime achievement, Jill was awarded the Sir Christopher Ondaatje Medal for exploration from the RCGS and the William Beebe Award from the Explorers Club. Jill Heinerth, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. It's such an honor to speak with you because really you've gone to places, you know, within the earth, when we think of the earth as being so solid, but just in the earth that most of us will never get a chance to see. And you've documented it so beautifully and also in your book, Into the Planet. And I believe you selected a passage to share with us. Yes, absolutely. This is from the prologue. Here we go. If I die, it will be in the most glorious place that nobody has ever seen. I can no longer feel the fingers in my left hand. The glacial Antarctic water has seeped through a tiny puncture in my formerly waterproof glove. If this water were one-tenth of a degree colder, the ocean would become solid. Fighting the knife-edged freeze is depleting my strength. My blood vessels throbbing in a futile attempt to deliver warmth to my extremities. The archway of ice above our heads is furrowed like the surface of a golf ball carved by the hand of the sea. Iridescent blue, wedged wood, azure, cerulean, cobalt, and pastel robin's egg meld with chalk and silvery alabaster. The ice is vibrant, bright, and at the same time ghostly, shadowy. The beauty contradicts the danger. We are the first people to cave dive inside an iceberg, and we may not live to tell the story. It's February, in the middle of what passes for summer in Antarctica. My job for National Geographic is to lead an advanced technical diving team in search of underwater caves deep within the largest moving object on Earth, the B-15 iceberg. If I had known that diving into tunnels inside this giant piece of ice would be difficult, but I hadn't calculated that getting out would be nearly impossible. The tidal currents accelerated so quickly that they've caged us inside the ice. We're trapped in this frozen fortress, and I have to figure out how to escape. There are no training manuals or protocols to follow. When you're the first to do something, there's nobody to call for help. The most qualified cave diving team in the world with experience and skills to rescue us is right here, trapped inside the B-15 iceberg. My husband, Paul Heinerth, our close friend, Wes Skiles, and me. The glazed tunnel we're swimming through is magnificent. 300 feet of ice presses down upon us from above this narrow passage, groaning with emphatic creaks and pops that signal its instability. The current is gaining momentum and the garden of life on the seafloor beneath the iceberg bends like palm trees in a hurricane. Frilly marine creatures, brilliant orange sponges, worms that look like Christmas trees and vibrant red stalks double over and shake in the flow of the tide. Wes is trailing behind Paul and me, attempting to film our exploration for National Geographic, and I sense him losing ground in the current. Our planned one-hour dive is stretching out of control, and I'm not sure how long I can tolerate the cold. Can we survive two hours? The 15 crewmates on our battered research vessel Braveheart are likely unaware of the drama unfolding in the water. They only know that we're overdue. If we don't return soon, our captain will have to call for help into a radio handset but no one will hear him. We're beyond the range of communications, utterly alone against the wilderness, and there are no other capable divers on board. Our colleagues will search the horizon through binoculars. They'll launch the ship's helicopter and ferret feverishly over the endless white ice of the Ross Sea, but they'll know that nobody survives long in these indifferent waters. We would be remembered at best as gutsy, but more likely as lunatics. The incredible pain in my hand begins to yield to a numbness that threatens to hijack my resolve. I know that as my core temperature drops, confusion will follow. When pain subsides, death is often lurking. I plunge my frostbitten hand into the doughy seafloor to pull myself forward, and columns of clay rise like smoke. I'm simultaneously hot and cold. 
and my chest is heaving, my lungs burning. There's a beam of daylight, soft and elusive, about 300 yards away, and I begin kicking as hard as I can, latching onto anything on the seafloor that could edge me closer to it. I can hear Paul and Wes's heavy panting, but my mind is turning inward to my own survival as I gain one inch of ground at a time. How does a dying person know when it's over? They say that your life flashes before your eyes, but that isn't happening to me now. All I can think is about escaping from the water that I love more than anything else. I've spent my life immersed in a relationship with this element that nourishes and destroys, boys up and drowns, that has both freed me and taken the lives of my friends. Now, I have come to my moment of reckoning. My life began in water, and I refuse to accept that it may end here. Oh, you really bring us into that moment of what it's like to face your own end. And how do you prepare for that? I mean, that's something it takes such strength. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you don't really know until <laughs> until you experience something like that and you sort of learn whether you're a fighter or whether you surrender, I think. And so how did you build up that strength? And also you pause it there and you've also stressed, you know, throughout your book and through your various documentations, the importance of knowing that line. You know, mm -hmm. it's so tempting. It's almost that I can get there and you just knowing I have to pull back at this moment. It'll still be there. Yeah, that's so true. We call that sort of the golden rule of explorers that you have to know when to abort, when to turn around, like, you know, even if you're within like reaching for some golden treasure that you perceive. But I think it's really important to understand those boundaries for risk and risk taking. But I also think it's important to step into fear. Like, I don't want to suggest that you, you know, every time you get scared that you just run away and abort, because I think that when you do stand on that edge, that threshold of fear, that that's also the threshold for discovery and opportunity to do something new for yourself or maybe something new for mankind. And, and so it is this little precipice that you're walking all the time and have to constantly recheck. Am I going too far? Am I pushing myself? It's difficult. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, precipice in that line of fear, because I was having a conversation with Alain Robert, the rock and urban climber, the other day. And you could perhaps define what it's like for you, because he's going to heights, you're going to depths. But he said that he knows his mind very well. And so he doesn't need a safety net because his mind is that safety net. So what for you is that safety net and those things you must do in preparation that you feel secure, that you know you can go deeper and further? That's a great question. I think so much of it for me does involve sort of a pre-dive visualization. And the process could be even happening sort of years before a particular dive or event. Uh, but right before I go in the water, I'm literally rehearsing everything that could possibly go wrong in my mind. And those might be like equipment failures. It might be anxieties that I'm feeling. It could even be something about my diving partner if I'm diving with somebody. Like what Achilles heels might they have both physically or psychologically? And I work through each one of those questions and then I solve it before I go underwater. So if it's a, a gear failure, like what would happen if my oxygen hose exploded on my first stage? Well, I would reach back, I would grab this valve, I would turn it off, I would turn to a manual control. So I both like, you know, go through those motor control like practices, like physical practices, as well as the mental steps. And what that allows me to do is take all of the anxieties and right before I dive, I can take that deep sort of cleansing breath and say, all right. I got this, know how to deal with all of these problems so that as I submerge, I leave those unnecessary stresses and voices above the surface and can just clearly focus on pragmatism underwater. Indeed. And I'm just wondering, because you really are able to put aside emotions, but I'm also curious about that line, because I think of it, maybe it's a, like a, an art where emotions, you put aside your emotions, but yet there's this thing that you must be able to draw upon, like an adrenaline, which might also be emotional, because like there's this intuition or the power of, you know, I might not say it right, but when a movement has its own logic. And is that also in a way also emotional? Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Intuition is important and wisdom of experience is really important. But I do have these very hard and fast, like pragmatic protocols that I will not break. And so it, it is this little duel between the left and right brain in a sense as well, because that, that left brain is constantly monitoring life support and the rules and reminding me, you know, oh, 
yep, you can't pass that threshold. You can't go beyond what you agreed would be your turning pressure for, for air supply, for instance. But there also is a sense of intuition. So even though I have set aside those emotions, there are times where I feel a foreboding in the pit of my stomach, which might make me turn early. Or there's just something that's not quite right about my partner's swimming, like something's not normal for them. So there is a role for intuition, but I think of it less in the terms of being contemplative and time consuming and more like a trigger. Like if I feel that intuition trigger, then it's time to heed that, that feeling or sensation. So I try to keep things as black and white as possible. There's really no no room for debate when every breath you take sort of marches you ever closer to an empty tank. <laughs> oh, exactly. And you've been in these situations where you had, you know, it's just the device is not where you're prepared, but the devices are just failing. So you have to then reduce your intake of breath and the amount of control involved in that when there are things that you can't control. Yeah. And there's oftentimes there's a lot of external pressures, whether it's a you know, a scientist that has spent their entire, you know, granting opportunity to get me to a place where I can grab a sample for them. Or maybe it's a TV producer who has like staked the budget on me getting a particular shot that's remote and difficult and risky to get to. Those pressures are very much in my mind. And I have to be able to divorce myself of that. Like I have to be able to you, you know, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to a place or maybe years of training to get to a place, but still be willing to say, no, not today, or maybe not ever. And, you know, some people call that discipline. Some people call that wisdom. It's really self-preservation for me. And I've certainly lost friends that didn't heed those warnings and did kind of crumble to the external stresses and then end up getting killed in the process. Yeah, you've written so movingly and poetically about the, you know, what it's like to live with those ghosts. You, you're yes. going back in, in some ways, it seems like you're going into different sense of time down there. And you also are, you have some different narratives running like that. Yeah, I write in the book that I swim through the graves of my friends and, you know, in the places where they died making different choices. And there's not a, a dive that goes by that I don't think about these people and perhaps the lessons or the wisdom that they've left to me and others. I mean, you know, nobody goes to, to work or on a vacation or on a dive expecting or, you know, planning to die. And so I have to respect that they went there with their own choices, their own decisions, and they had a bad day out, you know, were some of those deaths like directly attributable to choices they made before they went diving? Yeah, most of them. And so in respect for them and in memory of them, I need to do my best to learn from what happened, but also to share those lessons with others in their honor, really. Yes. And it also reminds me of the training of the military training. But for you, I mean, I don't know if we get reflections on that. They've had, you know, countless experiments, but you're going to places that don't have the benefit of that. Yeah, yeah. It's all new new territory. There's a lot of times I embark on a project where I can do years of research and kind of pre-visualize what I think I'm going to see. And then I get there and it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. This is so different or new risks that we never even anticipated. And so there has to be kind of a process within a team or even in my own mind for reassessing risks and making decisions to move forward again. And certainly that's what someone in the military would experience on a day-to-day -day basis with new emerging threats all the time. I can only imagine, you do describe it very well, but that heightened sense of situational awareness of just being aware of every moment, you know, would you say embracing fear, but it's just like a heightened awareness of the dangers. I'm wondering, you know, as you go down there, of course, you know, when we're up on top of Earth and not under the water, we have a different sense of time and perception and we take a lot of things for granted, but down there, it must give you this whole new appreciation. Yeah, it's, I mean, both in the short term and in the sort of long term scale as well. The sense of time can be warped by what's going on in my brain. So I do have this dance between left brain and right brain, left brain, pragmatic, right brain, creative. So 
if I'm managing a complicated life support device while I'm shooting, you know, stills or video underwater, there's a dual thing going on. The creative side of my brain loses all track of time. Just as anyone that would ever sit down to paint or draw or even play on the computer, time is just gone. But that left side of the brain has to keep track of time and constantly be monitoring my, you know, life support status. So so there's a very present sense of time and forcing my brain back into keeping track of that. But these places that I swim through are timeless in the sense that many caves that I'm swimming through are like museums of natural history that inform us about things that happened in very ancient times on planet Earth. So I'm swimming through this temporal portal to have a peek at uh, ancient history. This is fascinating. And yeah, you work, as you mentioned, extensively with paleontologists and biologists, paleoclimatologists and, and all sorts. Of, and so in a way, you are a scientist as well, because of course you have to be their body <laughs> collecting these yeah. things. I'm wondering, as you're down there for so long, you must have so many experiences where you really experience the wonder of the beauty of life on this planet. But do you get close to the perception, do you feel, of aquatic animals, you know? Yes, yeah. Yeah. For me, at times, you know, diving, especially diving in underwater caves, it's like, I like to say, swimming through the veins of Mother Earth, because I'm literally in the sustenance of the planet that we rely on and wildlife relies on, and even all the industries that we need to survive. So I have a very, you know, spiritual sense of that experience. But, you know, fascinating, too, is the fact that there are, there's life in these places. Like, there's life that lives its entire life cycle in the blackness of underwater caves. So they never see the light of day. And for many people, that's a quite a foreign concept of life. But many of these animals, although they don't have eyes, because who needs them in the blackness, or pigment, because who needs a fancy costume if nobody can see it? They have other sensory capabilities that allow them to hunt and survive in these very food-scarce environments. And I think that I have also developed some unusual sensory capabilities swimming through these, you know, dark black caves. So I think that that whole concept of when you lose one sense, others are heightened, believe that the human body is capable of different sensory experiences that can be heightened when others are suppressed. Definitely. And you would have this connection to the earth. I mean, it can't help but make you feel that we often distance ourselves, but I can only imagine that you have this intuition as well about the earth. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's... It's such a privilege sort of swimming through these places. And I almost feel like I'm getting a you know, secret peek into the body of the planet. And that, that's a very precious and almost a sacred kind of collaboration where I get to experience this, I get to see this. But if I'm going to take these insanely challenging risks, then I need to make it worthwhile and share what I've seen so that other people have the benefit of understanding the, a better conception of our connected planet. Indeed, because those places that you've visited have not been visited, have not, in some ways, those creatures are like present day, like not dinosaurs, but they are around since the dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, dinosaurs aren't all T-Rex. <laughs> and yeah, some of these little swimming animals that we see in the cave today have been unchanged, like in an evolutionary sense, since before the extinction of the dinosaurs. So we find an identical creature in the rock's fossil record that we see swimming in the cave today. And that's pretty remarkable. So I think of them as living, swimming dinosaurs. <laughs> and you mentioned a spiritual sense or an awareness of the beauty of life. Can you share that a bit with us? Yeah, I mean, these caves are so remarkable. It's not just wet rocks <laughs> I'm swimming through, you know, filled with life and they're filled with the essence of life, water. I mean, nobody can deny that if they were dying of thirst, that they would do almost anything to get water, right? You know, you'd go over to your neighbor and ask them for water. And if they didn't give it to you, you might steal it if you're dying of thirst. You'd do almost anything to save your children, right? So this sustenance that I'm swimming through, it's so important to protect because I have a very strong understanding of how this moves through the planet. Like I swim through these spaces, but even if I can't fit, that water continues its journey in between the grains of sand through the soils of the planet. And all of this water that we enjoy on Earth is interconnected. So we can't divorce ourselves from pollution or issues on the other side of the Earth. I, I really hope humanity gets that message. I sort of thought they might get it from COVID, that we're all interconnected. But we have to think that way about our water resources, too. 
Oh, completely. I think about you and how you always go on a dive being so prepared and it should be at forefront of our mind. Like we only have so much oxygen. We only have so much. We're not to a point where we're thinking about our resources. So earth overshoot and all these things we have, we just don't seem to put it in our, the forefront of our mind. Yeah, that's such a great observation. We, you know, many of us have activities like for me, cave diving, as you mentioned, like being very mindful of my resources that are available and knowing when those cut off and when I would die, you know. Uh, but many of us have those sort of micro experiences in life. And if we could only expand that to a reflection on the use of our global planetary resources, it would be a wonderful thing. So you talked about working with other people and needing to get a certain shot or bringing back data or anything. And have you found that there's ever a disconnect between yourself who's in these places, seeing these things and people that are like just looking at the information that you bring back? It's interesting because I'm an artist, citizen scientist. So I think of myself primarily as an artist where many scientists that I work with are very pure applied scientists. And so when you are working for an academic institution, there's a very strict sort of chain of events and protocols for, you know, observation, research, writing, peer review, publication. It takes a long time. And at each step of the way, that pure applied scientist needs to be quite specific and careful with their language so they're not saying anything that can't be immediately and fully defended. Otherwise, they might harm their reputation. Where an artist is really encouraged to sort of paint and imagine and just throw crazy ideas out there and brainstorm. So we can't, like, we might say things that are like, oh my gosh, did you see that skull? It's got silver teeth on it. Gee, I wonder if they were hiding their valuables inside the this, this skull, like, or whether that was a decorative application or whatever. Uh, so we could throw out these crazy ideas and the scientist is constantly going, whoa, 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 let's wait. We need to get evidence, research, blah, blah, blah. And so we kind of temper each other's in that yin-yang sort of way. But I would propose that the planet doesn't have time for some of that traditional science anymore. We need to put a little bit more effort into involving artists and citizen scientists in contributing to that data stream and the idea stream that can be synthesized into solving some of the greatest planet's issues right now, like water issues and climate change. So it, it's an interesting time where moving forward is going to require the most significant collaborations that humankind has ever embarked. So I was just wondering, when you're down there talking about the creative impulse or when you return to the surface, this is a bit esoteric, but what are your dreams like? Do you sometimes relive those moments or have dreams that turn into nightmares where you don't have enough oxygen? Just tell us about some of those. Well, you know, people say they dream of flying. Well, I, I dream of diving, which is similar, you know, kind of feeling like floating neutrally buoyant underwater. And my husband says that frequently my feet like make little frog kick kind of motions in bed at night. And then he knows that I'm having a diving dream. And he says, sometimes I'll scuba breathe where I'm just only breathing like like two or three deep, long, you know, respirations in a minute. And he knows I'm dreaming of diving. And I don't think I have ever had a diving nightmare. I have other nightmares that still may, you know, connect to the anxieties of an upcoming project. But my diving is always peaceful and comforting in my dreams. So with like the need to be more creative in these endeavors, I think the, the way that you talk about diving and the way that you write about diving is just so you portray a real sense of wonder. And I'm wondering if that came naturally to you or if that's something that you had to develop that came with like your sense of us needing more creativity in this field. I think I've always been a water baby. The joke in my family is that I was actually three weeks past my mom's due date. So I was three weeks late being born. And everyone says, oh, you probably just didn't want to come up with your, your mother's great ocean of a womb. <laughs> but my whole life, I've always had this fascination and enjoyment of water. And that sort of hugging embrace of the pressure of the water is extremely comforting to me. So I think, you know, some people are land being. Some people are, you know, are, are water beings. And I'm definitely a bit like clumsy and, and gravity's never kind of been my friend on land. <laughs> so, so I think the water's been comforting, but also I find it to be a place of great equality because it doesn't matter if you're a twiggy little 
lightweight, skinny person or an extra grand, bigger person. It doesn't matter what color or gender or cultural background or religion that you come from. When you're underwater in the silence of the ocean's embrace, you know, we all float neutrally buoyant in paradise and we all become mermaids. So maybe that's another attraction for me. Oh, I love this idea that we all become mermaids. I think it's some part of our common mythology. I think the success of like Avatar as well. I think this is mostly the way most of us will get to have that experience. So we can see that influence, I believe, both on James Cameron of d- deep dives that he's done. But I, we won't, most of us get a chance to, to experience that. Tell us a little bit about some of the cultural remains that you found down there or just the amazing creatures that like, how can this, what kind of mind dreamt this? Yeah. Well, I literally just came back from Mexico yesterday after you know six weeks of cave diving down there. And in Mexico, we see still a lot of human remains and artifacts inside the underwater caves there. One of the last dives I did just a couple of days ago was in a cave that's quite shallow that would have been completely dry in Mayan times. And you can see that people walked through the cave. You can see the remains of fire pits and you can see that there's, you know, ashes on the floor and and sooty marks on the ceiling. You can even see places where they mined red ochre to be used as a dye, as a paint in this particular cave. So we see a lot of of evidence of humans within these caves that are now submerged. So that's always fascinating to me. But also these animals. I mean, like there's one animal in particular that I see in Mexico called remipede. And it's a tiny little, tiny little animal, but it has venomous fangs and pincers. It has no eyes and no pigment. You can sort of see through its body, but it can attack something 40 times its size. It can grab it with pincers, inject venom into its prey, turn the guts into jello, and then kind of suck the life out of its prey over time. So amazing, you know, little animals. But some of these animals hold some pretty interesting clues towards new chemicals, new pharmaceutical components with very high potencies that could be used to solve other issues. So bioprospecting is even beginning in underwater caves where people are starting to look at the animals that are present there and what characteristics they might portray that are interesting for us to study. Yes, the creativity of some, well, I only get the images that are sent back up, but we see creatures that have lights on their body or they can express colors or on one side and on the other side, they can show a different face to whoever's looking at them. And that the whole mimicry in animals down the sea is incredible to me. It is. It, it really is. I mean, you know, we still know so much more about space and we keep going into space to look for water for life on other planets. And yet there's so much life on this planet that we don't understand yet and life that's living in places that we didn't even believe were possible for supporting life. Like I work with astrobiologists that are really interested in bacterial colonies and algal mats inside these caves because these might closely resemble the primordial soup that would deliver life on another planet. So there's so much for us to discover inside these caves and deep ocean environments. Yes. And as we think about the icebergs being activated through global warming, and I believe also you were originally you wanted to be an astronaut, didn't weren't as many opportunities up in Canada. And so you reversed your gaze. And so lucky for us. Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, you know, I got to watch the Apollo missions on TV at school and that made me want to explore, maybe want to be an astronaut. But Yes, no Canadian space program and no girl astronauts in those days. But diving for me, it sort of fell into that same category, really that same exploration category. And so inner space, outer space in my, you know, childlike mind, it was all, it was all the same, but the diving seemed more achievable and possible for me as a kid. And I think it's more realistic. Of course, it takes as much or more courage because of the dangers that you face. But I think that we're always often looking up like, oh, we depleted the resources on this planet. Let's see what else we can colonize. Whereas this inward gaze is like, what can we appreciate about this planet and making sure the conditions for us and other creatures and biodiversity Mm -hmm. can thrive on it is a more noble or important objective, I think. 
Absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's so easy for us just to like sweep away the difficult stuff and look outward. And uh, yeah, looking inward in in every sense, you know, personally, spiritually, physically, and then into the planet, I think is critically important. And so as you are going down there and you're so reflective, I don't know what's the longest time that you've spent down, but and what does it take to come back to the surface? My longest diving is a 22-hour mission, but I almost think of the difficulty of return as more about a project or an expedition for me. Like when I go to a place like Antarctica for a couple of months, it's so intense and every moment is precious and almost choreographed. And when I come home from an experience like that, it's very difficult to, you know, reintegrate into society, you know, when the cars are zipping by you or when people are pushing to get a spot in the line at the grocery store or whatever. It just all seems so trivial almost compared to what you've just experienced. And it's very difficult to communicate that experience with anyone that wasn't on the trip. So finding a way to communicate that and remove that sense of separation to to reconnect with society can be difficult. I found what Jill Heinerth had to say both in this podcast and when I was researching her for the episode, really interesting and really profound. There's already this inherent beauty in the parts of Earth that so few of us get to regularly see, like the caves that she dives in, and getting to hear about that sort of thing just really excites my imagination for what else could be possible on Earth? What sort of things that we haven't even discovered yet? And just learning about those things is always so fascinating. I think also that her work surrounding climate change and bringing more awareness to it and also just the fact that she has seen climate change happening in these caves that her work around that is very important to listen to. But I also really appreciate that it's not, she doesn't present it in a doom and gloom sort of way. She's still talking about all the wonders that Earth has to offer. I think that a lot of people, especially you know younger people, people my age, have sort of a sense that it's too late that we can't reverse climate change and however I think that the way that Jill talks about it makes it much more approachable and does give a sense of hope that things can get better and we can reverse climate change or at least start making steps towards reversing it and that especially is very important to keep in mind and now back to the interview I can imagine, and there you're so many nonverbals, or you're working really as one with your team. It's almost beyond language. And so then trying to explain what's so wondrous and complex and physical, I don't know how you learned that other skill as an artist to, to communicate it. Well, I guess I've always been a storyteller. <laughs> when I was a little kid, one of my favorite things was show and tell in kindergarten class, where you could bring something to class and then tell your friends about it because they didn't know anything about it. And uh, I sort of feel like I'm still that show and tell person. But I I think that storytelling is important to get other people excited and get their imaginations going, because I don't think there's any more powerful phrase in the English language than let me tell you a story. Because as soon as someone says that, your ears perk up and you kind of move in and you go, oh, storytelling. Yay. (laughs) So I think stories are a touch point for connection and a touch point for imagination and passion and really communicating that with somebody else. And we often share stories over and over and over again because they moved us in some way. So the science is important for us to understand the big global issues, but the storytelling is what's going to help that communication and maybe my, you know, balance between, you know, science and art help, helps to do that. Oh, I think so. And we're telling stories to the very youngest. Maybe they're not yet readers. I know you have the Aquanaut. Tell us a little bit about that and how you might be reconnecting with children that you know. 
Yeah, I wrote a book called The Aquanaut for Kids and realized that our best hope for humanity is to ignite the imagination of kids. And there were lots of things I was afraid of when I was a little kid. You know, I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid to go down the basement stairs because I had to go all the way down the basement stairs to reach the light switch before I could turn that on. And that was scary. And yet now I, I live most of my entire career in the dark <laughs> in places that would make people feel terrified and claustrophobic. So a lot of those young life experiences that I had, I actually turned into my superpowers. And I wanted to encourage children to know that anything they dream of, that they can make it come true with hard work and dedication. And that's what the Aquanaut's all about. Yeah. So you're kind of seeing big issues like climate change happening in real time right before you. And do you ever get like frustrated trying to explain to people that these things are happening? Yeah, you know, I talk all the time to groups big and small, and I still get asked by people, do you believe in climate change? And I'm like, it's not a question of belief. It's science. It's happening. And although I might feel frustrated, I try to never communicate that frustration. I recognize that for whatever reason, one reason or another, someone just doesn't have the knowledge. So maybe it hasn't been taught in school. You know, maybe they've become subjected to the very strong voices of a political entity that has, you know, steered them away from believing <laughs> in climate change. And so I try to take people at wherever they are and try to just very carefully and without judgment share what I've seen and my experiences and try to gently guide them towards better information sources. Because we can't just be polarized. We can't just call each other names when we don't understand. We have to help people to understand, you know, put out a hand and hopefully, you know, bring them onto our side, onto a better understanding of the science of what's occurring. I think that you make some excellent metaphors, just that thing about the limited resources and knowing what it's like. And then other people who we recently spoke to that the global footprint network and so they have this they set a date like earth overshoot we know was uh july 28th and if we all behave like ecuador it would be like december 6th where we would have enough resources to get us to december 6th but i think that you have this other thing what do you need going on a dive what do we need to continue to have a healthy planet and you bring that across so i guess what's your message oh gosh i'm still an eternal optimist it's normal to feel climate anxiety water anxiety like Anxiety for the fact that the world and politics is moving so fast and in troubling directions. But I have to remain an optimist. I have to continue to think about solutions. And I do. And I think my, you know, ultimate message is just we need to find our connections again. You know, set down the social media, set down the devices and find the human connections with your neighbors and the connections for the water planet as well. But recognize that this is one living, breathing organism that contains us all. The planet's going to be just fine. It's whether humanity and the natural world are going to make it through our transgressions or not. But remain part of the solution and recognize that every small thing that you can do in a positive direction will contribute to solving some of these issues. So don't give up. Yeah. And as you say, everything that we do on planet, it's written right down. You, you see it in the very depths. And you can have that through line to history. You see, oh, wow. I think that's amazing because I always think that some things would get washed away, but they can also be preserved and you see them below. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There are many, many secrets left to reveal from inside the planet. Hopefully some of those will guide us on a better protection of natural resources on the surface too. Yes. And you mentioned emotions and your ability to keep them in check so that you can meet your objectives and putting your objectives always in the forefront of your mind. And I feel this are very important lessons as we think you mentioned politics, where every sphere, like you say, social media, news media, and on all the platforms, we have so many triggers that we can't really focus on what's most important. Yeah, the world is very, very distracting. But I think breathing is a really important thing to work on. And anyone that meditates would probably agree or anyone that does yoga would probably agree. But when things startle me, when I have an emergency underwater, I, I use the same technique that I use to deal with stress out of the water. And that's to take this very, very deep cleansing breath right down into my hips and all the way up into my neck and 
in the process of taking that deep breath and being very present, that's when I tell myself, you know, emotions, you won't serve me well right now. So just stay over here until I've gotten through this emergency. And then I can bring you back in and deal with those emotions, those distractions. And in this ever sort of busying world, we all need to find a way to to re-grasp that focus when we need to. And you mentioned your recent expedition to Mexico. I know you've been to Cuba, the Bahamas, of course. You've been all over. So just tell us some of those high points for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, from inside an Antarctic iceberg, being the first person to cave dive there, I've, I've dived inside active volcanoes in the Canary Islands to underneath the Sahara Desert, in the Ural Mountains, in Russia, all over the planet. My next journey in a couple of weeks will be to go down to Micronesia to dive on World War II shipwrecks in Truk Lagoon, where the Japanese fleet was sunk in World War II. And then from there, I'm off to New Zealand, to the Poor Knights Islands, a, a very unique place where the currents from the Coral Sea bring very warm water tropical fish down into a much more temperate environment. So I've been so fortunate to dive in every ocean and continent on the planet. And yet there's still so many wonders that I have yet to experience. <laughs> oh, definitely. I think you should get out more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> But, you know, and though this journey is, and you always find something new, but what are some things that just surprised you? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, there's always interesting surprises and revelations. I suppose I'm still always surprised when we find evidence of human habitation or ceremonial activities like inside a cave that's now filled with water. But there's also other little wondrous things like in a cave in the Bahamas, I saw a bat that was beneath a layer of rock calcite but you could see through the clear calcite to see that a bat had once flown in that cave died there and then been slowly covered by layers and layers of rock or sahara dust like dust from the sahara desert in a cave in the bahamas so dust that traveled across the atlantic rained down on the surface soaked into the ground and then ended up in the substrate in a cave in the bahamas so there's always things that are kind of like wake me up and go, oh, wow, this is amazing. How did this happen? And in your deep dives, you're seeing remains of our human footprint yep. on this earth. You're seeing plastics too. I mean, does it get so deep? Oh, yeah. Plastic is raining on us every day. <laughs> every day, plastic is coming down onto us. So it's in fish in the deep. There's plastic everywhere on the planet. So a person of my age should not have seen so much change in their lifetime. And yet these anthropogenic human caused changes are very, very evident, whether it's like I can actually see that the quantity of water that we are withdrawing from our aquifers have exceeded that which is being redeposited by rain. I can see the color change from turquoise to green in springs that I've dived in for 25 years. I can see the loss of fish species or the bleaching of corals or the increase of stony coral diseases. I'm a witness to these changes. And yet my dive career is only sort of, you know, 30 plus years long. So I should not have seen so much change in my short lifetime. Yeah, we're very good at creating these new inventions and tools, but not always. <laughs> and it makes our life easy up to a point. And then it's, yeah, we don't think about the final consequences. But I think that also worked with scientists or witness projects where some of those man-made changes to the earth and to the oceans are being reversed. There are hope stories, but we need some pretty radical technologies to solve ocean warming and the acidification of the oceans right now. So I'm seeing small victories, which are good. <laughs> it's a start. You're growing more heat-resistant corals or finding ways to deal with carbon capture. But we need to go a lot further. And I do believe that the heart of all the issues is water. Like We first need to ensure that everyone has access to clean, fresh drinking water and that we learn how to return clean water back into the depleting aquifers around the planet. Oh, yeah. Water is the big thing. You know, when water comes to your front door, that's the that's climate change really on your front door. And how are you working with some of these climate scientists and what are those conversations? 
some climate scientists I work with are looking at Earth's past climate and what we find within the geology record underwater so that they have a sense of where the sea levels were at other times on the planet. But other scientists are working on more hydrology where it's like, where is the this particular watershed being fed by? Like, what is the recharge zone that leads to a spring or a river or a lake or whatever else? And so they might do dye tracing to find out where the different transmission paths are, but also science on, you know, water quality, like oxygen levels, uh, salinity, many different factors are important to understand, especially as they're changing and then causing a shift in the biology as a result. And you mentioned the development of heat-resistant corals. So I would think some people would be resistant to synthetic biology, but I guess in some cases you are in favor of it if it can save the corals. Yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, I think that we have sort of surpassed that the luxury of being able to say, no, we can't re-engineer biology. It's adaptation, right? And it's either going to happen naturally or we're going to help it along. And when you think of the planet today, like, the proliferation of invasive species that are outcompeting native species. Like we are kind of really intermingling the biology on this planet these days with the way we travel and move goods around. And so, yeah, I, I do think that engineering is going to be a part of the future and sustaining or maybe even reintroducing some recently extinct species, for instance. I don't know how far we'll go, like in terms of like the Jurassic Park thing, but, but those kinds of ethical decisions need to be made you know, globally, cooperatively. And tell us a little bit about your collaborations, like on documentary and how the pressures of doing it underwater. So you were saying how you could keep several things in your mind at once. So you know, I've got this very advanced life support technology that I'm wearing that's pretty much the equivalent of a spacesuit, except that I have to ensure my life support mix at all times. But then I'm also carrying a camera for video or stills. And it's, you know, like a land camera, but it's inside a large housing that makes it waterproof and pressure proof. And of course, I'm working in an environment with no light. So I have to take all the lights, which I may be deploying myself, but I might also be working cooperatively with a couple of other people who are sort of in this choreographed dance with me to provide the light in the right place. So yeah, there's a lot going on creatively. And I'm sometimes doing scientific photography, but more often than not, I'm trying to make something beautiful that communicates the scale and the sense of beauty and difference. And if there's people in the shot to communicate the remoteness and difficulty of what they're doing. And tell me about that openness to discovery, because sometimes you have this one objective where you really just focused on that. And is it sometimes changed or been adapted by things that you have discovered there or when you're going in on a more artistic or storytelling level? What have been some of those changes that you just couldn't have foreseen at all? Well, it's really interesting because you often have very specific objectives to achieve for a scientist. But when you've got as many dives as I do, you can't help but reflect and compare with other dives. And that causes you to notice things that others might just swim by. It's like, oh, this looks like something I've seen in another place. And that could be really important information. And one thing we always know is that the more you study some new phenomena, the more questions you get than answers. <laughs> like, and, and so you're constantly going, yeah, but what? But what if? But what, what if? it worked this way or what if it happened that way and then your project <laughs> expands you know one of the things i've been working on recently is canada's longest underwater cave system which is near where i live here near ottawa canada and inside that cave it's the densest amount of biological material that i've ever seen in a freshwater cave and it's mostly mussels like bivalves shells and i reached out to Canada's foremost malacologist. That's somebody that studies those types of animals. And he's not a cave diver, but he was blown away with what I was seeing. And for about three years now, I, I keep bringing him back data and doing more work. And we come up with more questions than answers about this really important community of filter feeding organisms that are cleaning not just the cave system, but the Ottawa River as well. Yeah. And speaking of surprises or developments that have grown off what you've discovered, have you been surprised at the applications? Oh, absolutely. Some of the cave adapted animals, for instance, mentioned earlier, they have, you know, remarkable sensory superpowers, but some of them also have other interesting characteristics like a cave adapted crayfish can live 200 years. 
where the river crayfish that lives just a few meters away might live two to three years. We also know about all kinds of interesting components like antimicrobial or antibacterial or anti-cancer agents that are found in these organisms like cave sponges, for instance. And the amount or the potency of those components can be a hundred times the potency of a similar organism just outside the cave. We don't know why, but it's definitely an area of interest and study for those people that are doing prospecting these days and learning about the positive attributes of these animals. Well, it's definitely given us a lot of things to think about. If we continue to not manage our resources as well as we are at the moment, then we have to think about how we can become hardier species. Can we survive in similar type of environments? Yeah, maybe we'll all be taking to the water world. <laughs> or it will become, it will come to us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This, this is the, the case. So as you think about the future and, you know, some teachers or collaborators or life lessons that have been important for you, what are your reflections on the beauty and wonder of the natural world? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, well, with every day on this planet, I just discover more new wonders and have more fascination for the natural world. I would tell any young person to make sure that you make time to get out and experience those wonders. And in the process, ask yourself what you've always wanted to do, what you've always wanted to be, and know that there are no bounds to what you can achieve if you put your mind to it. So you don't have to settle for, no, you can't do that. You can make it happen. And I believe if we all really chase the wildest imaginations, then that employs our exploration mindset. And, and using that exploration mindset will only net new things for you, but also new things for humanity. Exactly. Thank you for your example and passion and following your dreams. It gives us a great example to we can follow in our own lives. So thank you, Jill Heinert, for showing us that we can rise above our fears, that it's possible to do extraordinary things if you have the passion, curiosity, creativity, and conviction that the impossible is achievable. And that by believing in yourself, determination, and willpower, we can look danger in the face and discover the wonders of this planet to strive for a better future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Wow, so well said. <laughs> Thank you. We're just reflecting back what you have shared in your life. Thank you. It's been wonderful to spend the morning with you today. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time between your expeditions. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Ellen F. Stothew with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Ellen F. Stothew. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved at One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.